0: Welcome back to our podcast, Regulation Matters, A CLEAR Conversation. I'm your host, Lyne Dempsey. I'm currently the Chief Compliance Officer with Rick and Associates Family Dentistry here in North Carolina, and I'm also the chair of CLEAR's National Certified Investigator Training Committee. As many of you are aware, the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational rec- regulation. This uh, this podcast is a chance for you to hear about important topics in our regulatory community. Our guests today are Richard Sonica with Sonica Macura and LeBlanc um, in Toronto, um, Ontario, and Mark Stobbs who is with the Professional Standards Authority in the UK. We're glad to have you both with us here today. Welcome. Thank you for having
1: us and it's nice to present again with Mark. Thank you, it's lovely to be here
2: too and good to see you, Richard Richard, online.
0: Absolutely, I was going to say, you know, for our listeners, they don't get the privilege of of actually getting to see us, um, since this is an audio podcast. But you know, because we've got technology and can do this, um, it's so wonderful to actually put eyes on on both of you. It's been it's been too long, so um, so we're glad to have you here, um, and and we're certainly glad to have our listeners for joining us as well. Um, so the the UK Department of Health and Social Care has published proposed changes. Healthcare regulation, and that's entitled "Regulating Healthcare Professionals, Protecting the Public." Now, the proposed reform covers four key areas: uh, governance and operating framework, education and training, registration, and fitness to practice. So, we'd like to hear some details about the proposal and how it might influence regulatory reform in Canada as well. But first, let's let's talk about some background on the PSA. Um, and and how that model has influenced professional regulation in Canada. So so for us to start off, Mark, um, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Professional Standards Authority, or the PSA as we know it, um, is, and and kind of what does it do?
2: Okay, well, we were first founded in uh, 2004, um, and it arose out of a number of scandals in healthcare, where The regulators in particular, the General Medical Council um, uh, and others, weren't perceived to act fairly or in the public interest. And we were set up to report to Parliament on how they were working in their uh, duties to protect the public. And also, we had a power to um, appeal fitness to practice decisions by those regulators, which weren't sufficient to protect the public. Uh, So, uh, the regulators themselves didn't have that right of appeal, Um, we did. And uh, we also had a remit to do a lot of policy thinking around good regulation, what it looked like, how the public should be protected. And I think it's fair to say that within the last um, 18, 19 years, things have changed a lot. The regulators are much more professional than they were, Um, we're still appealing Um, a number of decisions. Um, We we, we managed, I think, 20 in the year before the pandemic. It went down slightly during the pandemic because there were fewer hearings to appeal. But we're still there. And we did a great deal of thinking which led towards the review um, and and, and the government's proposals. And I think they've taken a lot of our proposals on board. though uh, that doesn't necessarily mean we're happy with all of them.
0: Well that's that's interesting. So Mark, uh, how does the PSA interact with the health and social work regulators in the UK?
2: Okay, so we begin by doing an annual report on them to Parliament. So that means that we look at their performance, that their timeliness, we look at their systems, and we do this by addressing our now 18 standards of good regulation, which cover all the main aspects of a regulator's work. So registration, um, training, standards, fitness to practice, uh, which many um, uh, listeners may, may think of as uh, professional discipline. It's the same. Uh, it, it's, it's the same concept. Uh, we also now have some general standards around transparency, openness, um, good governance, and um, equality and diversity. So we do an annual assessment of those. Um, it's, some of them we can look at very swiftly because they're doing a decent job and we know about that. Others um, where we have particular concerns, we can look directly at those concerns and go in and audit if we need to. Uh, So we we try and keep a um, a a close relationship with them so that we understand what's going on, what their um, uh, work is, but also um, keep a close uh, keep closely in touch with patient groups, um, uh, registrant groups, so that we can get a proper view about how they're working. Um, We've also we also occasionally produce some guidance. So um, there was a particular issue last year around holding fitness to practice hearings remotely and there were concerns from registrants about privacy, about how actually you could have a fair trial over the internet and we, we we produced some guidance for regulators which were around ensuring a fair hearing but also making sure that where practical such hearings could take place and I think that's actually quite an important role for us. In 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 getting some uh, consistency between the regulators.
0: Yeah, that 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 is certainly one of those things that I think uh, everybody has had to deal with. It's, it's been kind of uh, a really kind of crazy crazy time. So I guess from the authority uh, perspective, I guess what are some of the uh, the achievements that you guys have had?
2: Uh, well, achievements I think include that the regulators actually are better than they were. They are. They now have better systems. They are more focused on uh, patient protection than they were. Um, to the extent that government feels that actually it can trust them more, it's be, they've become more mature organisations. They have um, lay majorities. Um, they are their 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 panel members. Their committees are much more professional than they were, and. Uh, Overall, they themselves are better. I think we've made a huge contribution to the law on fitness to practice, particularly around um, dishonesty and around maintaining the public interest in sanctions there. Um, A lot of our um, cases are cited pretty much in every single panel decision that you look at. Um, So we've, we've achieved a lot of guidance there. And I hope also, we've done a lot of work in, in, in internationally as well and provided some uh, some influence there.
0: Well, that's a, that's a perfect segue international-wise. Uh, let's turn now to Richard. So how has the Professional Standards Authority influenced professional regulation in Canada?
1: Thank you, Line. I did not hear about the Professional Standards Authority uh, for some time, maybe about a little over a decade ago. I heard a rumor that some of the innovation in the United Kingdom was causing a lot of interest in our government. Uh, And the most distinctive feature that I was hearing about was that it was the end of self-regulation, at least for the health professions. I must confess, at first I saw the PSA model as more of a threat than an opportunity, but uh, time has moved on. Um, And the PSA has transitioned from being an innovative idea in Canada to a voice of influence. Uh, First through conferences like CLEAR, and later as the PSA did external reviews of individual regulators across the country in Canada. The PSA has done, I don't know, maybe close to 10 such reviews in recent years. Uh, Many of them have been voluntary and some of them have been imposed by government. A couple of years ago, Sir Harry Caton and the PSA did a major non-voluntary review of the British Columbia Health Professions for a government that was intent on making changes. And that review is fundamentally altering the approach to professional regulation in Canada, in that the PSA model is being seen really as the way to go in the future by many policymakers and governments.
0: So you, you mentioned British Columbia. Um, so how are they following the PSA model?
1: Well there's been an evolution. Perhaps first was the regulation of the real estate professionals in that province where a loss of public confidence and self-regulation resulted in a government-appointed board of directors um, in in really what was a government agency and so uh, that model was chosen in 2018 along with the concept of oversight of that regulatory body by a superintendent. Uh, Then earlier this year, after a period of review and and consultation, the Professional Governance Act was implemented providing a uniform framework for the regulation of the professions related to natural resources in British Columbia. And there, there was a governing board of only, a smaller board of only 11 people, four of whom are non-practitioners. And even the professional members, while elected, go through a compsi based nomination process. And there is a superintendent overseeing, monitoring, assessing, evaluating, and guiding them. And that's just really started in, in officially in February of this year. Next up will be the health professions. And while the legislation has not yet been enacted, detailed proposals have been published. And it will likely result in a compsy-based appointment of all board members, professional and public, with smaller boards, not quite sure of exactly the size, but I think the 11 you saw uh, for the uh, natural resources profession is probably in the ballpark, with uh, 50% professional members and 50% uh, public members on the board. And an amalgamation of the regulators from current 20 health uh, uh, professional regulators to about six with an oversight body that will probably have um, a mandate fairly similar to the PSA in the United Kingdom. And there's also a unified and centralized discipline tribunal that will be separate from the regulator. So this model, if implemented, uh, will look very familiar to Mark.
0: Now, for for areas of Canada that maybe uh, the PSA model has not been adopted, at least as of yet, um, is it influencing, is is the the Professional Standards Authority influencing oversight of professional regulation?
1: Definitely. Uh, The province of Alberta has made some preliminary changes separating regulatory bodies from professional advocacy groups. And they're consulting on more radical proposals including a stronger policy role for the government and possibly combining uh, regulatory bodies Uh, in Ontario uh, we are currently having a consultation process on governance changes with our Ministry of Health and uh, that's partially self-initiated the College of Nurses of Ontario a few years back as proposing a similar governance model to British Columbia, except that uh, there would not be an oversight body, there'd be perhaps an external review every three years. And that governance model has already been enacted in Ontario for the Ontario College of Teachers, uh, the regulatory body for teachers. Um, And uh, I think uh, rather than an oversight body for the health professions, the government has introduced a college performance measurement framework that requires detailed reporting on various evaluation criteria. The criteria are similar, but not identical to what the PSA uses in the United Kingdom, um, including uh, how even within the electoral system for professional members, comp based selection can be incorporated into that model. Quebec has had an oversight body for decades. Uh, going east, uh, Nova Scotia has combined the nursing professions into one regulatory body with more modern legislation, albeit still with a self-regulation approach. So yes, the PSA has significantly affected policymakers outside of British Columbia, across the country, and I think it's fair to say that the rest of Canada is watching developments in BC with a keen interest.
0: Yeah, that's quite interesting. So I guess going back to Mark, um, so maybe an overview of the reforms that are being proposed in in the UK, I guess, can you tell us about the consultation process that is currently going on?
2: Yes, this has been actually going on for many years. We've recognized that we currently have um, 10 different health and social care regulators which are recognized by statute. There are also any number of other bodies um, dealing with um, counsellors, other healthcare-related professions who are not regulated. Um, we have a register which um, allows us to accredit uh, the one the um, registers which have a strong public interest role and which meet our standards there. Um, and the Legislation which governs those um, professions is uh, it, it's a myriad. There, uh, you, you have the Medical Act, which originally dates back to the 19th century, uh, governing the General Medical Council, though it's been amended significantly in between, um, down to the Social Workers Act, which came into effect in 2017. So, you've uh, and in between that, you have a series of different regulators, all with slightly different powers, many with different vocabulary. So um, we can't even decide what, wh- whether we talk about misconduct or unprofessional conduct, as, as a trivial example. They're all based on individual professions in a world where actually healthcare is now team based. And you see many cases where you you have a doctor a social worker a nurse a psychiatrist involved and when things go wrong um it's very easy to see how they how a patient can slip through the cracks um both in terms of the professionals themselves and then in the regulatory solution afterwards so we've been arguing for um certainly since about 2012 for um A much more joined up approach for uniform concepts among the regulators. Think about whether we should amalgamate some regulators, whether some professions actually need to be regulated statutorily, um, in that there are some professions, such as arts therapists, for example, which you might think are relatively low risk um, and which are regulated by statute. Compared with um, councillors um, who are not and who arguably could do substantially more damage to um, an individual. So, we've been ar- arguing for some time that that should be dealt with and that there should be a rationalization of the rules. Um, and our law commission looked at this in 2012 and made some recommendations which weren't taken forward government then consulted, I think around 2016 on some overarching principles, and now it's come forward with actual proposals for um, not primary legislation but secondary legislation, which will at least address some of our concerns. And in the aim of those is to provide all the regulators with a consistent legislative footing, which is an absolutely a great start. It will also give them much more freedom and flexibility. Um, You have rules which, for example, at the moment, the size of one regulator's fitness to practice committee is set out in statutes, which gives them no flexibility, for example, to appoint more members if they have a high caseload. We have others where particular interest committees are in statute, so the our General Optical Council has to have a Companies Committee, um, which again, it's a it, it's a relict from a, uh, from a bygone age in our view. Uh, so it will give them a lot more flexibility. There'll be much less black letter law there, uh, and they'll be empowered to make rules governing particular parts of their work uh, and enabling them to deal with that. Um, it's also, I think, most interestingly, um, proposing a, uh, a, a thing called accepted outcomes in fitness to practice, where rather than go to a panel for a hearing, as you would normally, the registrants can accept that they're impaired and accept a sanction put down by the uh, proposed by the regulator. Um, And in principle, you could even agree to be erased (laughs) or struck off the register under these um, proposals. Um, And again, in principle, this is something we support considerably because um, fitness to practice takes a huge amount of time. It takes a disproportionate amount of regulators' resources. It's not efficient. the, it, it puts particularly patients and witnesses under immense pressure if they're if they're cross-examined uh, and it also um, um, makes it really difficult for um, registrants as well, who may have the two, three years, four years of these proceedings hanging over them with their lives on hold. Um, and this, this could be um, a, a, a great improvement for them.
0: Well, certainly, you, you mentioned some concerns that seem to have uh, some, I guess, uh, possibility of, of remedy um, through these proposals. Are there any, any concerns from these proposals that keep you up at night um, that, uh, that you have concern over?
2: Well, I think, I think part of our concern is about oversight, um, where if you have 10 regulatory bodies, each with their own um, rules, and their own rulemaking abilities. Um, you can imagine that after three or four years, suddenly they're all looking very different again. <laughs> and while you have the equivalent powers, your actual processes um, could be all over the place. Um, and doubtless there will have been extremely good reasons for each of the individual bodies changing, but what you will get is something which is just as confusing if you're not careful to patients and to the public so um, we we're not sure that it's quite got the balance between flexibility and consistency right and there, you know, there's a tension between the two um, and one of the things we've argued for in our response is some sort of oversight by the PSA a fairly light touch but which enables us to say actually this is going too far um towards flexibility and you're you're missing patient protection here or this this doesn't work well with the other regulators work and the second is again around accepted outcomes where there's no again no oversight of those of those outcomes and what what you could be looking at are some extremely serious cases essentially being settled by on the papers behind closed doors with just the outcome published uh and uh, i i don't think we're saying that regulators are incapable of making those decisions you know they're mature bodies they they're but everybody makes mistakes and um It's interesting, our our social workers, our newest body, has this power now, and we did a study of their first year's experience there. What we found was that it was excellent for the easy cases, for the convictions, for the health cases, for uh, the the ones where, for clinical or um, practice problems that the registrant accepts they're there. The um, solution's obvious um, conditions or some sort of suspension or a caution, and it, th- there's really no reason at all to object to that. Um, your problem comes where it's complex, where the registrant isn't accepting all the facts. So we saw one where we had a registrant saying, Yes, I was there. Um, but was denying the fact that she was dragging the children to the car and banging on windows and uh, saying, I'm a social worker, I can get you put in prison, Um, which you might think were the more serious points. Um, And so you have the the, the case examiners who were looking at this saying, yes, we think she agrees, we think she has some insights, and therefore we can just put an unrestrictive sanction on her, which... I mean to do them justice, I think even social working well social working but accepted that this was not a suitable case to have been sorted by case examiners because you needed the panel to work out actually what the facts were to assess the registrant's insight and remediation and then reach a sanction in those on on, on, on that basis. You can't do that just on the papers. Um, and so we are again, our response is i is that you probably need some sort of um more again clearer guidelines about what is suitable for this sort of decision, and you might say actually you have to agree on the facts <laughs> uh you, you you have to have some basis for saying that there's insight um but even then. That, that that was an example of something which you know, the regulator itself says it shouldn't have happened but there isn't an oversight power to put that right um and I, the idea is that you would could refer it to the registrar for the registrar to ask for another look at it which again uh, might well work in many cases But if the regulator itself has made a mess up of the prosecution, so it's not included papers, if it's not charged particular things. I think I I have some worries about a regulator having two bites of a cherry there and the opportunity to put its previous mistakes right. That doesn't quite feel fair.
0: I (laughs) understand that. (laughs)
2: but it's and the positives are it's at least something is happening we've been on about this for years and there are and 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 and, and much of this will be positive
0: absolutely well, well richard let's finish up with you um so i guess what impact do you see uh, these proposals having on uh on the reform of professional regulation in canada
1: Uh, It's interesting that some of the proposals, maybe the the less uh, significant ones, would not be a surprise to Canadian regulators. So uh, some of the uh, uh, reforms about increased collaboration and sharing of information with other stakeholders, such as other regulators and in the healthcare sector, hospitals and long-term care homes, uh, that's been authorized priority for some time for, for many regulators in Canada even if it's sometimes more of an aspiration than a day-to-day reality. Uh, for some professions in Canada, not all for sure, uh, open board meetings and published minutes of board minutes are already uh, exist. Uh, regulators in Canada often set their own annual registration fees. And most regulators in Canada have no limitation period for complaints and can consider historical complaints, especially for things like sexual abuse Whereas, as I understand it, some of the regulators in uh, the UK have a five-year limitation period on that. Um, So I think of most interest uh, to Canadian regulators will be some of the following things. Um, uh, A requirement that regulators explicitly describe the impact of any changes to their rules or processes before implementing them. Impact on the practitioner, impact on costing, Uh, That's probably uh, challenging, but a a good part to have in the policy making process of interest uh, also is that it seems that there's going to be a maximum of 50% of professional members on the board, uh, which means that it could be less than 50%. And so that would be a, a change. Um, there's also some interesting proposals about uh, regulators voluntarily delegating uh, to other regulators some of their activities, such as you know, perhaps having a, a regulator with a great data system operating a public register on their behalf or, or pr- providing practice advice or perhaps doing the administrative components of the complaints and discipline process for other regulators. So that could be interesting. Um, In the UK, regulators seem to have a much larger role than Canadian regulators in overseeing the educational programs. Here, it's typically a different ministry that operates the uh, educational programs. And so here, regulators uh, sometimes are only able to influence educational programs by the content of their registration exams which indirectly forces the educational programs to teach those competencies. Uh, So I found that kind of curious to see that uh, extent of of influence. Um, There's also a proposal to be able to administratively remove practitioners who obtained their registration through fraud. And while there are a few Canadian regulators with that provision, it's usually not in the legislation itself. And so there's some doubt or hesitation about using that. And so uh, that would be nice to avoid having to have a full discipline hearing in that context. Um, and if I'm reading it correctly, there's also the ability to administrative remove practitioners for incapacity issues or language fluency issues with, yeah. uh, without a full discipline hearing. Um, and uh, Mark, I'm not sure
2: you're accepting that. Um, I think that's a really complex um Question and yes, we have a lot of doubts about that. Um, And so, and one of the interesting things is that there there is a proposal in the paper that um, you subsume English language competence and health into lack of competence, which is one of our grounds for um, imposing a sanction. Um, I think you can argue about English language there. I think health is really difficult because. In our jurisdiction to to demonstrate lack of competence you have to show a substantial body of work which is not competent now if you have a registrant who is actually a danger um, for example with a serious relapsing mental health condition um that may not be demonstrated yet and but but it it seems to be absolutely wrong that you should wait for her to damage somebody before you can bring that sort of action and I think to be fair our governments having maybe having some some other thoughts about that
1: okay well that'll be interesting to see because that was a bit surprising from my perspective and then your your major point was about the accepted outcomes uh, approach where serious sanctions could be imposed without a hearing if the practitioner agrees and yeah. and so uh, a formal structure for that um, I think would be innovative I mean certainly we have uh, agreements and resolutions but typically they're presented to the discipline committee yeah. first uh, so uh, having we're, I think we're going to be watching that structure and see if the concerns of the PSA are implemented there So uh, I think there's lots of interesting things in this um, to be watching and to see if it happens and if it does, how it works out.
0: Well, excellent. Well, I think this has been a a fantastic conversation. Um, I do wanna thank both uh, Mark and Richard for speaking with us today.
2: It's great to see you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, same here.
0: And um, it has certainly been a pleasure. So I also want to thank our listeners uh, for tuning in for this episode. You know, we invite you to continue the conversation through our CLEAR discussion forum. So this podcast will be posted in CLEAR communities and members can reply to the post with your comments or reactions to proposed changes. Uh, Do you think these regulatory reform proposals in the UK might influence changes to professional regulation in your jurisdiction? Uh, We'd love to continue this uh, conversation, so uh, that's just one question to to pose to to the community. We'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a CLEAR conversation very soon. If you're new to CLEAR podcasts, uh, please subscribe to us. You can find us on a variety of of podcast um, uh, services. Uh, We're on PodBeam uh, or just about any one of your favorite podcast services. If you've enjoyed this, uh, please leave a rating. Uh, in, or comment in the app. Uh, those reviews help us to improve our rankings and make it easier for new listeners to find us. And also feel free to visit our website at www.CLEARHQ.org for additional resources, as well as the calendar of upcoming online programs and events. Finally, I'd like to thank our CLEAR staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson. She is our content coordinator and editor for our program. Once again, I'm Lyon Dempsey, and I hope to be speaking again to you very soon.